we are a society that loves to go out and eat. Or if we don't go out and eat, to invite others to come and join us in our homes and eat. Um, so much of our relationship building happens as we share a meal together. Uh, so much of our fun times happens as we eat together and we enjoy a meal together. So much so that almost every, after every Sunday morning, there's groups and clusters of people uh, after the service who eventually decide to go out and, and eat a, a lunch together. And if you have not gone out with us to eat lunch after the service, we encourage you to stick around. You might have to stick around 30 minutes or so as people are finishing talking in the sanctuary and then go out to eat. So those of you who are new to our congregation and, and like to be in quickly and then out quickly, um, you may find it a challenge to just stick around and uh, eventually we decide to go and eat somewhere. Why? Because we love talking and so much good stuff happens when we eat together. In the Bible, God speaks about his future coming and gives us various pictures of the coming of Christ, of the second coming of Christ. But one of the images that is spoken of with, with great anticipation in the Bible is the picture of the coming of Christ uh, through an invitation to participate at a supper. You know, the wedding supper of the Lamb. But we are told in the Bible that when we think about the end times, and the particularly the second coming of Christ, the, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb is not the only supper. The second coming of Christ is associated also with another supper. It's a very different supper. It's an opposite supper from the wedding supper of the Lamb. If the first supper is the, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the other one is the great supper of God. And if we keep looking at Scripture, which we are about to do, we're going to find out that the great supper of God is great, not in the way that any of us would naturally be thinking of being great. It's great in a negative way. Well, let's go to the Word of God and, and look at the two suppers that are described for us in His Word, that describe the second coming of Christ. We are in the book of Revelation, and this morning I invite you to open to Revelation chapter 19, I'll be reading from verse 5 to the end of the chapter, verse 21. Revelation 19, verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage on page number uh, 1039. Here is God's word for us this morning. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants. You who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is in its presence, had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts as we hear? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the word that you reveal to our hearts. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning in a way that Christ would be exalted, in a way that our hearts would be drawn to see and be prepared for the second coming of Christ. We pray that as you prepare and present these two suppers before our hearts, before our eyes, before our appetites this morning, Father, we pray that you would increase in us a taste and a desire to belong to the supper of the Lamb. Father, we pray that you would awaken us to realize the the magnitude of what happens at the second coming of Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would prepare us for that day. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. This chapter, this passage that we have read, uh, speaks about the second coming of Christ. The Bible presents to us and tells us that Jesus is coming again. Physically, he's coming again triumphantly. In this chapter, the second coming of Christ 
is described through the contrast of two suppers. One is a wedding supper, and the other is a bloody battle supper. In one, Christ appears as the groom who unites himself to his bride, and his bride is his people, those who belong to Christ, those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ for their salvation. They become the bride of Christ. In the other supper, Christ appears as a triumphant warrior who defeats the beast and the false prophet and all those who followed them in rebellion against Christ. Now, by putting these two suppers before our eyes, by putting these two suppers before our appetites, the text is challenging us to consider carefully Which supper do we want to belong to and participate in? Let's look at this passage and consider the two suppers. Our passage is divided in these two points. The first one, the married supper of the Lamb. The second, the great supper of God. Let's look at each of these and how each of them are so different and what they tell us about those who partake of these suppers. The marriage supper of the Lamb, in in verse 5, John hears a voice coming from God's throne. And notice what it says. Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. What characterizes the servants of God is that they fear God. And it's not in the sense of being terrified by God or scared, but in the sense of revering him, holding him up in high esteem recognizing that he is the sovereign God, the one who reigns. It doesn't matter if we are small or great. It doesn't matter if we consider ourselves to be small or to be great. All God's servants are called to praise him. I want to ask you, even thinking about this command that, that John hears issued from the throne of God, friends, how did you do this week? In praising God. Consider your life. What does it look like for you to praise God? How do you praise God most often? Do you hear other people around you who are God's people? Do you hear them praising God? Are we a congregation of people? Are we a gathering of of people who are known to praise God? Do others hear you praising God in your conversations? And consider what is it that you typically think about praising God for? There are many reasons that God's people can praise God. But in this passage, we see two reasons why why the people of God, the servants of God, are called to praise God. The first one is in verse 6, because God reigns. In verse 6, John hears the voice of a great multitude praising God. Notice what they declare. What is it that they praise God for? Verse 6, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The reason why God's servants praise God is because they're confident that his kingship is not threatened. 
His kingship is not thwarted by the beast, by the dragon, or by anyone's attempts to usurp the reign of God. I want to ask you, do you praise God for his reign? Despite all the evil that we see, or that we see around us, despite the wickedness and the evil that dominates our world currently, despite the rampant idolatry that goes around us, do you and I meditate on God's reign in such a way that it causes you to burst in praise for his reign? There's another reason why we see the people here in this passage praising God for. It's because of the marriage supper of the Lamb is now finally in view. Look at verse 7. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. In other words, the servants of God are praising God because they see that the time has come for the marriage of Christ with his bride. Interestingly, the groom in this picture is described not as a man in a tuxedo, as we would normally expect in a wedding ceremony. The groom in this picture is described as a lamb. What a strange picture to describe the groom as a lamb. Yes, he is a lamb or appears as a lamb because he has cleansed a subset of people from their sins and has made them to become his bride. Who are the people whom the lamb has cleansed of their sins? It is those who repent and trust in Christ. Friends, have you repented and trusted in Christ? If you have not, I want to encourage you today. Make this day a day when you turn to the Lord. Turn to the, to the groom whose blood has been shed to make us clean before God. So that we might be pure before Him. So that we might become His. So that we might become His bride. Those who become the bride of Christ are those who are invited to the married supper of the Lamb. And the only way we can become the bride of Christ is by trusting that Christ is the Lamb who was slain in the place of sinners. And if we confess our sins and turn to Christ, He cleanses us of our sin and makes us His bride. Notice what is emphasized in this picture about the coming supper of, of the Lamb. What is emphasized is the readiness of the bride. Notice, and his bride has made herself ready. What is involved in the readiness of this bride? Look at verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then in the next sentence, we find out that the bright and pure linen uh, of, of the bride represent the righteous deeds of the saints. In other parts of the Revelation... The clothing of the people of God, described in, in pure clothing, in white clothing, uh, refers to their garments having been washed of their stain and having been cleansed and purified through the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation 7, chapter 7, verse 14, John saw the 144,000 uh, people. They were described in this way. They have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood 
of the Lamb. You say, how, how do you make something white if you wash it in blood? Well, this is symbolic language, friends, that portrays the, the spiritual significance, the spiritual effects that, that we experience as we trust in the sacrifice of Christ. When we repent of sin and turn to Christ and entrust ourselves in Him and in His sacrifice, Christ purifies us. He purifies our stained and soiled garments. So what makes the garments of the people of God in the book of Revelation pure is the blood of the Lamb. But in Revelation 19, the pure garments of the bride, we're told, have been granted to her. It's the garments that have been granted for her to clothe in. In other words, she's not, she's not making these clothes pure by herself. They have been granted to her. But once they have been granted... She is dressed in them. And these pure garments are described as, are defined as the fine, uh, the righteous deeds of the saints. In other words, the righteous deeds of the saints are now described and symbolized through the pure linen white garments of the bride. And you say, well, how is it that the, white, that the, the righteous deeds of the saints are on one side described as a, as a garments, and at, at the same time the garments are white through the blood of Christ? It is not that the righteous deeds make us pure, rather that our righteous deeds reflect the purity that we have received as we have washed our clothes in the blood of Christ. The best way to understand this picture here is if you contrast it with another passage in the Old Testament where God refers to his relationship to his people through this picture of a marriage relationship. There's a few places in the Old Testament where that happens. One of them is the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. God described his actions towards his betrothed wife in the following way. In Ezekiel 16, 10 through 11, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. This was part of, of, of the groom clothing his bride with clothing that he provided for her. Then in verse 13, And thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was a fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. This was part of the ceremony of God marrying his people, like a groom marrying his bride. In that picture, it's not like the bride is going out to shop for a dress and buys her dress and wants to impress the groom with her dress on the wedding day. Oh no, it's rather the groom purchases the, the clothing for the bride and the groom provides a clothing for the bride. It's all provided by the groom. That's what God did with his people in the Old Testament. God provided for his people as a bride the, the ornaments, the garments, the, the clothing, everything so that his people would be unadorned and beautiful and excellent and, and awe-drawing bride. But here's how the people of Israel 
in the Old Testament responded as the bride of God. In verse 16, you took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. In other words, in the Old Testament, the people of God took that which God bestowed upon them and they used it for their idols. Their actions became idolatrous. That is a story of the bride in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we see the opposite of the Old Testament bride. In Revelation 19, the bride has made herself ready for the groom. And her pure linen represents the ongoing deeds of faithfulness to God. In other words, in the new covenant that God makes with his people through Jesus Christ, his people are characterized by a life of righteousness because God had worked in them a deeper cleansing, a cleansing of their hearts through the blood of the Lamb. Here the people of God are given a motivation to continue the path of faithfulness to God. Unlike the people in the Old Testament, who have taken the path of unfaithfulness and compromise, here we see that the bride of the new covenant will make it. She will be pure. She will be cleansed. She will be presented before, the, before her groom. Friends, it's not our righteousness that makes us pure before God, but the blood of Christ that purifies us. And the people whom God redeems are empowered by God's Spirit to show that redemption, to show that cleansing through their life of devotion to God. After describing the readiness of the bride, the angel offers a blessing to all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at verse 9. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The people of God are both the bride and in this picture, they're also the guests invited to the marriage supper. Now you might say, wait, how can you be both the bride on one side and at the same time also to be the guest invited to the wedding? Well, this is the power of symbolic language that's present in the book of Revelation. Both the picture of the bride and the list of guests are, are, are pictures that address us today. To be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb is a great privilege. Yet, many today disregard it and ignore it or even belittle it. There are some who prefer to live their lives as if they are not going to participate at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I wonder if you find the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb as being a blessing to your life. Or do you see it as something that's not worth your time? That's not worth your attention. Something that you can perhaps delay until later in your life. Until you go around and, and feast at other suppers and go to other parties. I wonder if you consider the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb as being a blessing. The angel commanded John, write it down. Write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you see it as the highest blessing you could receive? Friends, this invitation is given to all those who repent and trust in Christ. The way to receive this invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb is to repent and trust in Christ and to continue to live a life of ongoing devotion 
to the Lord. And the invitation to the marriage supper closes with a confirmation of the truthfulness of God's word. Look at verse 9. And the angel said to me, these are the true words of God. When John hears this confirmation, that these are the true words of God, John wants to worship the messenger. Look at verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. It is easy sometimes for us to worship the messenger than the one whom the messenger represents. But the angel is spot on. He does not miss a beat. The angel refuses to be worshipped and instead directs John to worship God. And in this, the, word, the angel shows that he is a true messenger of God. The angel here stands in a great contrast with the unholy trinity. Remember in chapters 12 and 13, the unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet? What were they trying to do with the people of the earth? They were trying to seduce them in such a way that they would begin worshiping the beast. To change the the worship of the people of the earth, away from worshiping their creator, the God who, who made us, and instead to worship a created being. And here is the angel standing in stark contrast with a beast and with the unholy trinity. And the angel says, I am not God. I am not divine. Yes, I may be telling you the words of God, but do not worship me. Worship God. And the angel describes himself as a fellow servant with John and with his brothers. How amazing. This angel who was so, so, so high in, his, in, in the light that was around him in such grandiose and, and powerful image that, that the angels of, of Revelation often appear, that so much so that it makes John to fall down before him. And, and the angel says, I may, I may have this great status. I may have this great glory around me. But I am a fellow servant with you, John, and with those who are your brothers. And then the angel describes the brothers with a very sweet description. Those who hold on to the testimony of Jesus. This means that those who are the bride of Christ are those who hold on to the testimony borne by Jesus. What Jesus taught while he was on earth, what Jesus revealed to us in his exalted status through this book of Revelation, is what we are called to hold on to. What does it mean to hold on to the testimony borne by Jesus? Practically, this is done in several ways. It's hard to hold on to something that you are ignorant of. Or that you say, yeah, I heard it, but I forgot it. It's hard to hold on to something that you forget. So holding on to the testimony borne by Jesus involves an act of ongoing reading it, meditating on it, and intentionally and regularly considering what does it look like for me to grab a hold of it, to hang on to it, to live it, to keep it. It means to obey and keep the testimony that Jesus revealed to us from his Father, to act on it to seek to live it out in our lives, to let God's revelation shape our view of ourselves and our view of the world. 
Friends, let me ask you, what, what sources do you use to shape your views and your convictions? The way you explain yourself, the way you explain this world, the way you explain things in this world. It's amazing. These days, we live um, according to the gospel based on the internet. You know, I just read something on the internet. It must be true because I read it. Or we, we read, we love shows, certain shows, or certain popular um, figures in our culture that, that promote a, se- a sense of, or a, a set of worldviews, a set of commitments and values and priorities, explanations. The gospel according to, what we might say, science. So science, is not, science is not opposed to God if science acknowledges that there is a God. But if science begins with the premise that there is no God, science is going to do its scientific work assuming and, and not computing that God is in the picture. So some may have a, uh, live their lives according to the, a particular subset of science, a science of secularism or a science based on secular philosophies. When you think about the ways or the sources that shape you, that shape your values that shape your definitions of what it means to be a human being, of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to relate to one another as men and women, where do you go for? What is, are the sources that inform your thinking, your value system? The people of God, those who are the bride of Christ, are those who hold on to the testimony of Jesus to the testimony that Jesus has borne. And the holding on to it, it means that you allow the testimony that Jesus revealed from his Father to shape you, to form you, to inform your thinking, to inform your values. The people of God who are the bride of Christ hold on to the testimony borne by Jesus. These are the people who are invited and are expecting to partake of the great supper of the Lamb. 